In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. I'd like to ask you first how I'd like to find who you are for the audience maybe first time listening to you. How would you like to find yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm on the faculty here at uh, Northwestern University. My home uh, appointment uh, department, that is, is uh, material science and engineering, although I have joint appointments in uh, biomedical engineering and neurological surgery. So, you know, I run, run a large research group here, kind of active mainly at the boundary between engineering uh, and, and medicine. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, participate in this uh, podcast. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. But I'd like to ask you first, based on your work, First of all, when you look to nature or evolution, what's something you think in terms of sensing or designing material in yeah, or human or maybe something inspired you is still very challenging for us now in this intersection between material science and engineering. It's hard to design or understand how it works. If you notice something like that. Yeah, so um, you know, a large fraction of our research focuses on the development of uh, new classes of devices that can uh, monitor various aspects of uh, biological systems. And that could range from uh, cell cultures to small 3D uh, tissue constructs to animal models of uh, you know, various biological processes for fundamental research, but, but also um, you know, translating to um, use with hu human patients to, to address Unmet needs in uh, in clinical healthcare. So so really spanning that that entire wide range. Um, you know I think our core competency is in electronic material science and and in thinking about those kinds of applications. We're interested in developing materials for electronic, optoelectronic, microfluidic, microelectrical me uh, mechanical systems that adopt geometries and, and sets of mechanical properties that are naturally compatible with soft tissues that one encounters in, in the biological world. And so that's kind of a radical departure from the sort of rigid, planar, semiconductor wafer-based uh, technologies that exist today in, in microsystems uh, engineering. And so there are tremendous opportunities for uh, the development of new materials, uh, but also in the development of new ways to combine old materials with new materials, so hard materials with soft materials, for example, in kind of a, a hybrid heterogeneous integration type of strategy. And so, so that, that's kind of the centroid of our work is, is around the material science and, and the mechanics of materials and, and interface science and so on. Uh, but in order to, to have a real impact um, you know, on biological research or you know, human health care, um, you need to work um, kind of at the system level. So, so not just the development of the base materials and a fundamental scientific understanding of those materials, but, but really developing competencies to weave those materials into novel classes of devices. And, and then not even just isolated devices, but devices that interconnect with one another to build, you know, functional systems that, that can be handed off to our collaborators in neuroscience research, for example, or can be deployed on patients through the collaborations that we have you know, across our medical complex here in Chicago. And so the consequence is, uh, you know, our programs are highly interdisciplinary. And, um, you know, our core is in, in material science, but, but we feather in, you know, expertise in electrical engineering and 
computer science, engineering, data analytics, uh, manufacturing science, and, and try to bring it all together in, in such a way that we can connect our new you know, materials innovations to ultimate needs and, and requirements uh, so that we are positioned well to you know, contribute not only to the academic kind of scientific literature, but, but where you know, the ideas make sense and there's a good intersection with, uh, with unmet needs, we, we can begin to think about translation and, and broader impact and commercialization and, and think things of that sort. So, so that's the sort of uh, research team that we've uh, tried to assemble you know, over, over the years. And, and I think we've you know, been able to do a, a reasonably competent job of that. Let me just ask you about the design. When you speak about weaving different classes of material, for example, soft and hard, how do you see the, maybe the morphology or architecture? Or maybe what could, from your experience, more significant in designing so that you can get really interesting features? And how really changing geometry can really significantly change the behavior of the material? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I'll just take a step back before answering that questions, uh, question specifically. I mean, if you think about, let's say, a silicon integrated circuit, it's a spectacularly sophisticated piece of technology. But in all commercial forms that exist today and have existed historically, that technology has been built on the rigid planar surface of a silicon wafer. Uh, and that, that's a great substrate for lots of different applications. You end up with microchips, and they call them chips because of the mechanics and the geometry. But if you want to you know, integrate that sort of technology with uh, soft, time-dynamic, moving, curvilinear surfaces or, or you know, uh, volumetric spaces of, of uh, living uh, tissues, the, the mechanics uh, is sort of all wrong, and, and, the, and the geometry kind of doesn't make sense. And so you really have to think about that challenge, um, you know, from the standpoint of the constituent materials. You know, what, why uh, does an integrated circuit have the properties that, that it does? Is partly because the silicon itself and many of the other functional, uh, you know, materials in that system are, are rigid and brittle, and they're most easily processed in, in planar forms, and that, that, that's the, the consequence. And so you think about it, um, you know, how do you kind of reformulate that technology without losing uh, you know, much in terms of the sophistication and the operational capabilities to look more bio like biology? And one, one strategy would be to just move away from silicon, move away from silicon dioxide, move away from copper, and think about you know, maybe conducting polymers or semiconducting polymers or 2D materials or graphene or carbon nanotubes and then build a whole new, you know, portfolio of electronic materials and develop manufacturing approaches allow you to manipulate those materials and develop an entirely new technology uh, base where, where the goal would be to overcome these sort of you know, highly non-ideal geometric and uh, mechanical characteristics that, that characterize um, you know, uh, silicon integrated circuits. That that's one way to go, and uh, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, exploring that pathway to to this in, end um, goal of biocompatible electronics. And uh, I think there are a number of uh, you know research groups uh, around the world who are doing great great work uh, along those lines. The, the the other direction, and I think this is where your your question is really oriented, is to uh, think about how you can. Um, use silicon or use silicon dioxide, all sorts of, you know, well-established electronic materials, gallium arsenide, gallium nitride, and so on, 
um, but but integrate them in in a hybrid way with with soft materials so that um, those brittle hard materials uh, develop sort of effective soft characteristics at the system level. So so it's still the same brittle hard materials, but you've embedded them in soft elastomers and you've configured them in a geometric uh, fashion so that you can uh, affect kind of an end-to-end stretchability with a low modulus uh, response to, to forces um, that, that lead to this kind of um, soft biocompat- uh, biocompatible uh, structure. And so, so that, that's a separate, different sort of conceptual pathway to, to the same endpoint. And it's really that second strategy that, that's worked out best for us in any, anyway. We're, we're able to produce devices that offer realistic levels of function, unique capabilities that can't be reproduced any other way. And so, so I guess the centroid of our activity is in that second route. We still, you know, are interested in completely novel materials, but I think like taking existing materials and putting them together in interesting ways and using, um, say, buckling mechanics would be one, one very simple example of how you do this. So, so you can take very thin strips of silicon, for example, um, and uh, by, by making the silicon uh, extremely thin relative to the thickness, let's say, of a silicon wafer, so moving from a thickness of one millimeter to maybe a thickness of 10 nanometers, uh, there's a tremendous reduction in the bending stiffness as a result of that reduction in thickness. And that's pretty simple elementary bending mechanics is sort of intuitive how that works. And so thin silicon becomes flexible. So now you can put that thin silicon on a sheet of plastic. You can make a very high performance, flexible uh, integrated circuit. Uh, for biology, you need more than just the ability to flex. You also need uh, a capacity to stretch, which is a different type of mechanics. But you can also achieve that by playing with the geometry. So you can take these thin strips of silicon, you can bond them to an underlying soft elastomer substrate, but you don't bond them just in a flat geometry, you bond them in kind of a wavy shape. And once you've done that, now you have a hard, soft material composite structure where um, applied force can uh, lead to an overall stretching of that integrated system, but but in a way that doesn't induce lead to fracture-inducing strains in the silicon itself because that wave structure can now change to to accommodate in-plane deformation by trading off uh, out-of-plane displacement. So so the amplitudes of those wave structures go down when you stretch that system in a way that, again, reproduces or provides kind of an end-to-end stretchability uh, but but in a manner that uh, doesn't impart significant strains in the silicon itself. So that would be like the simplest example of how you can kind of use geometry, use principles of mechanical engineering, buckling mechanics, hard soft materials to like kind of cleverly take what works well in conventional electronics technology and reformulate it and adapt it into these soft biocompatible forms. That would be the simplest example. All kinds of different ideas in origami and kirigami and you're you're playing with sort of sort of motions in 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 a way that creates like an effective i guess like a mechanical metamaterial i guess is one way you could think about it so you can achieve not only low modulus with linear elastic response but you can even engineer in sort of j uh j-shaped stress strain behaviors that are very similar to those that you see in the biological world by getting a little bit more sophisticated and exploiting in-plane serpentine design. So you're doing out-of-plane buckling, but also in-plane buckling and all sorts of uh, you know, engineering elaborations of those uh, basic ideas. So it turns out to be a really robust, rich 
direction for research, thinking about how to do some of those things. But once you come up with solutions, they're immediately applicable, not just to silicon integrated circuits, but almost every class of uh, planar microsystem technology that exists today and applicable for any class of material, not just silicon, but, but really any, any material, uh, inorganic or organic or, or otherwise. And so for us, that's been a very productive way to go. And, and it, it really is the, the dominating design strategy for almost uh, everything that we're doing in soft electronics these days. Excellent. So I'm curious to ask you, when you look to the material part and selection of the closest material for designing, for example, sensing here, and the geometry and mechanics, how do you see this kind of relationship here? Which one is more dominant, do you believe? Currently speaking, you think that's so significant so that we can push the design limitation, for example? Is it the mechanics, geometry, materials part? Which one? Or maybe something else, yeah. It's pretty much everything taken together, I, I would say. You, you need to use every tool in your toolbox. I mean, I think um, one, one maybe deficiency of certain, you know, research approaches is to become too fixated on one aspect of the overall system design. You know, Laser focus on mechanics alone is not going to solve the problem. You can't solve it just with new materials either, you know, and, and you, you really have to um, be flexible in your thinking and, and uh, be, be willing to uh, combine everything together. You know, it's sort of, sort of this interdisciplinary approach. I mean, you know, again, my, my core expertise is in uh, material science, but we appreciate that uh, mechanics design is uh, of critical importance in, in all of these uh, types of efforts. And so, so we collaborate very closely with top groups in mechanical engineering, both, both experimental and theoretical groups uh, in, in mechanical engineering. And Professor Yunggong Huang here at uh, Northwestern is an example of a long time collaborator that we've had in this space. And uh, you know, he has the ability to you know, develop analytical scaling forms to help us understand the underlying physics so that we can optimize, more effectively optimize the, the design choices. He also does, uh, you know, system level computational simulations of, uh, you know, the mechanics of these hard, soft structures. So you go uh, about designing uh, a system, you have to think about not only the intrinsic properties of the materials, obviously, but you also have to think about how you put those materials together in devices, how you design circuits. That's all pretty much conventional to all kinds of electronic systems. And now you have to think about mechanics design right along with uh, circuit design because it's the layout of the circuit elements that terms the function, determines the function, but, but it's also, you know, determining the effective mechanics, like how far you can stretch these types of devices before something breaks, for example, or, uh, you know, what kind of force you have to apply to induce a certain deformation. And um, you have to design into the, to the system from, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, the underlying uh, physics and, and the engineering choices such that the overall platform is providing the function you want, but also mechanically matched to the uh, point of integration, uh, whether that's the skin or, or the brain or the cardiac system, kidney, liver, you know, uh, lung diaphragm, all, all sorts of places across the, the, the biology and, um, you know, the, the animal models or, or human subjects where we've explored uh, integration. So I guess my answer, yeah, is to think about everything, you know, don't, don't become too, too fixated on, on one particular aspect because all of these different, um, you know, components, materials, mechanics, electrical energy, they're separate knobs in, in a sense. And you want to be able to manipulate as many knobs as possible, 
you know, to get you to the to the endpoint and and to to allow for the development of systems that meet a whole myriad of requirements. Typically, a very very challenging set of a set of requirements, and so you have to think about everything. I would I would make the other co uh, comment maybe that uh, the materials diversity is also you know an, an important consideration here and and. Maybe I would emphasize materials over some of the other aspects, just maybe being a material scientist. But but if you want to um, think about body-integrated electronics, so, so you can think about it as like two components to the overall system. One is kind of the um, supporting electronics that's providing the radio frequency communication, for example, or the A to D functionality, or the, or the sampling, the multiplex to, uh, addressing uh, capabilities, or amplification, all kinds of like back-end stuff that, that's, that's essential. But then the forward-facing uh, materials are those that actually make physical contact and are you know, physically or, um, or optically engaged directly with, with living tissues. And, and there, you know, there, there are probably broader sets of opportunities for new materials. Let's say materials that are not found in silicon integrated circuits as they exist today. It's really that interface layer, the, the transduction layer that's allowing for the communication between the electronics and the optoelectronics and the adjacent contacting biology. Uh, and, and there, you know, you, you need to think about materials that it can engage at a molecular level to monitor bio chemical markers of health, for example, and uh, basically provide currency exchange between, you know, biochemistry and ionic flows and so on that, that are governing the, the behavior of the biology and the flow of electrons and photons, which are kind of dominating the, the function of that kind of electronic backplane component of the system. So there are different material challenges in different aspects of these o overall uh, devices. And, um, you know, bringing all of those materials together in, in, in a robust single system is, is where there are tremendous research opportunities. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I'm going to ask you in that case about the design and the scope of the material, maybe into the mechanics and also geometry, and maybe general work. Do you think intuitive design is the first approach? Because sometimes there's a problem, I think, in materials, this kind of structure, you don't understand how it can be solved analytically, for example. It's so complex. But intuitively, like, make a lot of sense. I don't know if you have experience you just think about, let's go for intuitive design and the first step. Do you have any moment like that and was like, or maybe design was counterintuitive or surprising? Because sometimes it happened. Yeah, that, that, that's a good, good question. I, I would say that um, most of the designs that we end up with are, um, are fairly uh, intuitive at some level. That, that's usually not good enough, you know, to, to do really rigorous uh, engineering optimization and... Uh, and, and uh, to, to sort of identify the best design parameters and so on. But, but it does provide a good starting point. You can kind of, you know, guess at what kind of layout and what types of materials are going to work together. You have to think about interface mechanics tend to be uh, a dominating consideration. And in many cases, those aspects of these systems can't be uh, modeled effectively because, you know, some of the surface chemistry is not well known. And in, in many cases as well, you know, you have a pretty good idea of the constitutive properties of the materials, but they depend on processing history and, and other you know, aspects that are sometimes difficult to, to quantify. But, but I think a, you know, an empirical kind of intuitive approach is a good starting point you know, in, in many of these cases, but, but it can't be the end point. So, so that's why you know, analytical and computational modeling is, is so important, because it can take you from that 
initial guess at a, at a optimized design and then help to refine it. And sometimes those refinements are subtle, just changing the you know radius of curvature of a particular serpentine feature or moving you know uh, you know a, a silicon component from one place to another be, to avoid a stress concentration, for example. And and many of those kinds of subtleties are not immediately apparent. They're not intuitive, but uh, but they can be captured by by modeling. Um, I'll give you one example of something that, that for me was non-intuitive and, and was uh, sort of revealed by uh, analytical modeling. And that, that has to do with um, your relatively recent uh, effort for us, which is uh, involving the addition of uh, winged flight to small-scale microsystems technologies, so very, very small integrated circuit chips, radios, uh, digital biosensors, and so on, where our goal is to take some of our body-integrated uh, sensor technologies and uh, reformulate them or adapt them for application in environmental monitoring. Let's say monitoring the characteristics of the atmosphere or uh, properties of groundwater, for example, or the or the soil. And 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 in thinking about that, one one big challenge is how do you um, disperse small devices over large areas and and volumes? You know how how do you go from just you know, manually placing devices at different places on the body to deploying those devices at scales of like a cubic mile or something like that if you want to monitor the atmosphere. And uh, we, we thought about different strategies for doing that. And, and one uh, scheme that's particularly appealing for us is to um, use bio-inspired ideas uh, that, uh, you know, evolution has, has arrived at uh, for seed dispersal in, in the plant world. You're thinking about, you know, a microchip as something you want to disperse in conceptually the same way that a tree wants to disperse genetic material, you know, that, that kind of thing. And uh, thinking about, you know, how maple seeds are designed to uh, develop this kind of helicopter-like motion dur during, um, during a free fall. And, um, you know, in such a way that, that the uh, terminal velocities are reduced to ex extend the engagement of the seed with, uh, you know, patterns of uh, airflow, wind, wind that, can, that can aid in, in the dispersal. And so we've developed ways to add very tiny wings to uh, microchip technologies. And uh, we can design those wings at least as a starting point with this kind of uh, intuitive design approach. You know, you think about like how the wings need to be configured to create this helicopter-like uh, motion in those kinds of, uh, and that's that's a reasonable starting point. It doesn't get you to, you know, the ultimate, you know, optimized, you know, flight, flight dynamics, but it is uh, a good starting point. But the other consideration in those kinds of devices is you want them to be as low cost as possible so that you can economically think realistically about deploying thousands of devices. So that means for any kind of semiconductor device technology, you want to make the devices as small as possible because the cost is, in many cases, scaling with the overall size. And so you want to make passive flyer structures inspired by wind-dispersed seeds, but at size scales that are much smaller than seeds, much smaller than a maple seed. And, and then the question is, like, how small can you, can you go? And, and uh, you know, where, where does the scaling sort of, sort of break down? And uh, we have ways to create these uh, three-dimensional wing structures and add them to an integrated uh, circuit chip, uh, for example, at any length scale, almost any length scale. So submicron, we can even, even generate wings at that scale. But, but what turned out to be the case, and this is maybe a little bit intuitive, non-intuitive at the time, but maybe if you think about it, may, maybe it does make sense, which is that um, you can achieve this kind of controlled 
helicopter type flight flight dynamics for certain size scales, but below a particular um, uh, length scale, everything just drops like a sphere. And there's very little aerodynamic advantage to adding wings when the overall structure size is less than about a millimeter. And we wouldn't have, uh, well, I wouldn't have immediately guessed that, but that was something that, that came as a result of a combined effort in experimental studies using wind, wind tunnels and computational modeling to capture you know, the aerodynamics of how these wings engage with air during free fall at these very small size scales. And that was maybe a little bit surprising, something that you know, came up uh, fa fairly recently in, in, a, in a new project area for us. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I guess to ask you again about the design in that case, uh, I think about physical intelligence, because I think it's very interesting how maybe you aspire to have fast and cheap and also less computation. And I guess to ask you in that case, how you leverage this kind of intrinsic feature of the material so that you can reduce this complexity of computation and achieving maybe some sort of physical intelligence. And I think that's an interesting part, maybe um, if we can, I'll operate in that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's an uh, interesting direction. It's certainly, um, you know, a, a well-populated area in material science research. Uh, I guess if you're referring to physical intelligence as intelligence, it's kind of built into the material structure itself. I think that's really interesting. We have a, a large multi-university program in uh, 3D kind of functional responsive materials where, where you don't have well-defined device components that's controlling the response of a system. It's just embedded in the chemistry and, and in the material structure, and it sort of automatically, almost smart material may, maybe is uh, a little bit dated as, as a terminology, but, but something, you know, with, with that sort of, um, you know, concept, um, you know, gu gu guiding the, the design choices and, and, and the research. So, um, so, so it's interesting, you know, we, we have the ability to, to combine now, you know, electronics with microfluidics, with optoelectronics, and you can begin to think about those kind of, um, you know, highly integrated types of systems almost as a complex kind of living material structure in, in a sense. And, and the question is, how do you create sort of um, uh, responsiveness and, and some kind of embedded intelligence and the ability to to sense and respond and actuate in, in complex ways. And so I guess we're, you know, in, in terms of like a realistic technology that begins to embed some, some of those ideas, I'll come back to the uh, environmental sensors and maybe, maybe some of our sweat microfluidic devices uh, as, as well. But, you know, the, the wing structures that we add to these microchips are typically made out of polymer materials. And, and we like, you know, environmentally degradable materials as well. As you imagine, uh, you know, distributing ten, tens of thousands of devices across an area, you don't want to have to go and, and recover each one. And, and you also don't want to, uh, lead, you know, create electronic waste streams that could be hazardous. So you have to think about, you know, all of the constituent materials being ultimately environmentally degradable. And so we use, um, you know, polymers for the wings. We, we try to adapt existing electronic materials to the extent possible to um, you know, support this kind of degradability as a key characteristic. But, but into the wings themselves, we can um, integrate color metric um, chemical reagents that respond through a color change to um, you know, a, a characteristic of interest in the environment. And that could be temperature or UV exposure or particulate pollution or heavy metal contamination in groundwater or, or pH or, or other kinds of um, 
other kinds of species that one is interested in, in tracking. And so I suppose in a very primitive way, that begins to move toward, you know, kind of a physically intelligent system. And uh, right now we're using uh, high-resolution digital um, image capture technology to do the color readout as a form of wireless communi communication, I, I suppose. But you could also envision, um, you know, a spectroscopic capability, um, you know, integrated in the chip component of these flying microsystems that would be able to um, maybe use ambient light to read out the color change uh, and then uh, transmit that that information wirelessly as as a more advanced scheme of that very uh, that that very sort. So, I guess that would that would be a really simple uh, example of how you can build responsive materials, maybe co-integrate responsive materials with you know, functional components of a hybrid, you know, microsystem. Um, it, it's not full, fully, you know, realizing that that grander vision of physical intelligence, but maybe maybe a simple step in that direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'm curious to ask you again about the when you try to achieve certain features, for example, uh, the maybe the sensing part, the sensing part. There's different maybe categories here you have to consider in design and sometimes there's a trade-off between the mechanical performance for example and the accuracy I, I just I'm curious if there's something you notice uh, maybe still limitation about the trade-off the design of material or how we can push the limit here maybe also for example in, in human body for example you also speak about how can this kind of electronics maybe dissolve it over uh, like um, the lifetime so when you look to the space of this kind of features you think that's maybe still so challenging trade-off here, or uh, I'm, I'm curious about the trade-offs here in that part. Yeah, I mean, I think there there are um, quite significant challenges that, that remain. And um, I think a lot of those challenges have to do with the fact that there's a lot that's unknown about biology and, and how living systems respond to man-made technologies and, and how does that integration work and what is the interface between these abiotic systems with the biotic world what what does that that look like and so so that that that's a big problem i, mean, I think especially for um your devices that implant into the body and need to maintain um stable operation over long periods of time so and and th those periods of time could could be measured in decades if, if you're uh talking about uh, a device that's uh designed to last the life of the patient and so What's going on over that incredibly long time frame? You have have a device that's immersed in warm saline solution, essentially for you know, say, fifty years or something, thirty years, and and that that represents you know, ach achieving stable operation under those conditions represents an extremely daunting materials challenge. But then you have layered on top of that challenge the fact that um, in a lot of cases, you know, the immune system you know, of, of the, the bi biological, you know, the li living organism is uh, activated to uh, break down your, your device and, and to, uh, you know, accelerate the degradation of, of the materials. And so you, ha you have, um, you know, an integrated system where one of those systems is actively attacking the other, you know, uh, unless you do, do something very clever to, to avoid that. And so, you know, that, that kind of um, response, and, and it could be as benign as the, the formation of a fibrotic tissue capsule uh, around the device can, can have a profound effect on that measurement interface or the, um, the interface that's defining a, a therapeutic function uh, supported by, by the device. And so 
I think it's an academic area for research. I mean, in some ways, that's that makes it even more appealing because there's a lot of discovery that needs to happen around you know fundamental questions around how, how the biology is working, and then that you know uh, feeds back to uh, choices and and uh, challenges in materials development and overall device design. And so, if you think about biocompatibility and stable operation in that broader context, you have to think you know certainly about the um, you know, chemical uh, compounds that, that make up your device. So you have to think about things at the intrinsic materials level. But, but you know, compatibility and immune reactions can also be triggered by mismatch between the mechanical properties of the device and the surrounding tissue or the geometry. So you have to think about all these different uh, aspects. And, um, and, and, it's in, and it's intrinsically an experimental science because... Uh, you don't know the operating principles, all of the the, the basic uh, you know, aspects of the biology, and so 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 you you have to you know explore and do experiments and look lo look at the reactions and um, you know take take those those data and and try to extract insights that that can help guide design choices for other types of, of, of devices. So so I think there are tremendous tra challenges at that level. Um, the the other you know question is is how do you do sensing beyond physical characteristics. So I think ex existing microsystems can, can do extremely well measuring things like optical absorption or temperature or strain or acoustic responses and biopotential. All, all of that stuff works really well, but how do you measure neurotransmitters, for, for, for example? How do you measure subtle fluctuations in, in the concentration of calcium, for, for example, if you're studying neural processes. I think that's where there are tremendous frontiers in, in material science and in developing those kinds of biochemical sensors, again, with the additional requirement around stable operation for long periods of time. Extremely challenging, but, but I think extremely rewarding areas of, of research because successful outcomes could have profound impacts on the way that we... Um, we study living systems and ultimately the way that we do healthcare, uh, you know, and, and the way that we treat human patients to improve outcomes and ultimately reduce costs as well. So, so there's, you know, tremendous outcomes for successful efforts. There's uh, deep and exciting basic scientific questions that need to be answered. And I think it's for a lot of these reasons that, uh, you know, the centroid of our overall research programs are kind of in this area. It's just very rich and deep from an academic standpoint, but with all sorts of broader in impacts that would flow from successful efforts. Right. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Great. Now, Chris, again, in that part, maybe if we want to push the limits here, integrated living system with artificial material. How do you see the integration, possibly, that we're using the living material to adapt with artificial one yeah so you know I, I think there's there's a fair amount of work and um, you know not just in, in academic circles but but now more and more in uh, you know startup companies and I think traditional biomedical device technolo technology companies are also you know expanding you know the, the range of uh, capabilities but but if you look I think mo most or all devices either, Kind of integrate with the um, surfaces of tissues, so sheets of electrodes, for example, that that reside on the surface of the brain would would we be a good example, or different different devices that that interface with the uh, surface of the skin. That's fine. Then then you have other 
classes of devices that um, you know, interface at point locations in the depths of tissues. So penetrating probes, so deep brain stimulators, you know, would be a good good example of that, or cochlear implants, so sort of uh, probe style, style geometries, typically with one or a small countable number of um, interface active interface points, typically electrodes, but in into the future you can ma imagine LEDs or other, other or chemical sensors, other kinds of sensors. So it's like surfaces or um, linear collections of devices that, that probe down into the depths of tissues. I think, you know, a, a, an exciting frontier may, may be impossible, but, but it's one that we like to think about at least is, um, you know, a different modality where, uh, you know, the devices would be distributed through a volumetric space because, you know, just residing on the surface of the brain, you're missing all of the activity that's happening down into the depth. If you have a probe, you get some depth information, but you're losing the surface and you're losing the adjacent uh, volumes as, as well. And so, you know, how do you do kind of 3D integration where, where devices are distributed throughout that volumetric space and, and are engaging at a qualitatively deeper level than anything is possible from surfaces or, or, or point con, uh, contacts in uh, selected regions in, into the depth. So I would say that's kind of like a grand challenge. Maybe, maybe there isn't a solution, but it's one that we like to think about. And from the standpoint of um, you know, the engineering science, the corresponding challenge is how do you develop classes of electronics or optoelectronic devices that are configured in an open 3D mesh-like architecture, uh, much like, you know, a neural network in the brain or, you know, a system of blood vessels, you know, that are permeating a, a 3D space by, by necessity for uh, delivery of nutrients and removal of waste. How, how do you begin to do that in a, in a, a circuit technology? And, um, yeah, I think we've we've kind of worked that um, problem over over the years, and and I think we kind of know kind of how to do that. Ba basically, take a a planar integrated circuit and um, configure the system so that we can, uh, in a deterministic and controlled way, cause the active elements of that circuit to move up out of the plane in a series of coordinated translational and rotational motions to uh, form kind of an open. 3D network type geometry that, in principle, can engage over that 3D space, and um, you know that that's that's something we've been working on for a while, and and the same techniques actually sort of recast, uh, you know, are are used to form these wing structures for these uh, dispersed microchips that I was talking talking about before. So I think we have a pretty good handle on how to do the 3D. We do not know how to do the integration, however. Like you know, how do you take a a preformed you know network mesh of 3D electronics with plenty of open space where cells could could reside and engage, you know, across across that volume, you know, embedded in it. But but how do you get it into, you know, a living system without, you know, uh, inducing tremendous amount of damage during during that integration? And and maybe the answer is you simply grow the tissue around the scaffold. It's an active electronic scaffold now. Maybe you seed it with cells and you grow your organism around that, that structure. So the structure is forming like a skeleton, but also an active, you know, uh, 3D interface to, to the, the, the living tissue that, that results from that growth. So I would say it's still, uh, still sort of an area where we're trying to figure things out, but, but, but a direction may, maybe for the future. That, that would be one, one comment that, that I would make. The, the other one, um, you're kind of related to that. Again, thinking about 3D integration, I feel like... Um, 
you know, optical interfaces uh, to, to living systems are going to be the most powerful way for bidirectional communication and engagement uh, with, with a 3D living tissue, uh, just because you can project and image and manipulate photons at distances in ways that are impossible with electrons. <laughs> you know, and so there, there's tremendous activity in the biological community to develop uh, fluorescent tags of various sorts that are um, expressed through genetic modifications of targeted cells. And so, so they create the sensors, the optical sensors themselves, the natural cellular processes uh, do that. And then uh, the readout just involves projecting photons down into the depth of tissues that have been genetically modified in that way to create fluorescence that can then be imaged. And so then you can start to do 3D in that uh, fashion. The limitation is uh, really associated with the um, you know, finite penetration depth of, of photons due to scattering and absorption by, by the tissue. And so ultimately, there may be a hybrid approach where you have some kind of limited 3D, let's say, photonic system, uh, but then the last mile or whatever is, uh, you know, of engagement with the tissue is dictated by uh, projection of photons in, into a depth. And so it would reduce then the density of that 3D network that, that you would need in order to support full volumetric engagement with, with the tissue. So probably an optical approach combined with a 3D hardware infrastructure for emitting and collecting and imaging photons, maybe something like that would, would represent an ultimate solution. But you know, we'll, we'll see. I think it's very much an open area. Um, tremendous opportunities for new ideas, creative strategies, new materials, and so on. So that, that, that's an area we find uh, pretty exciting. So since it's close to the end, I have a few questions. Maybe the first one comes to the redundancy or scenario failure for sensing in such really critical situation like the patient here. How do you imagine design sensors like maybe more redundant or adapt to uncertainties like failure, damage? This scenario, how do you imagine the capability of redundancy here? Well, a couple of things I, I would say, you know, in response to that question. One is that, um, you know, we're very interested in devices that, that actually don't need to last forever, that, that are designed to uh, monitor or provide a therapy in the context of a transient biological process, such as wound healing. And so in those instances, we have uh, classes of materials, electronic, photonic materials, uh, battery materials, for example, that are uh, bioresorbable, so, so they dissolve in uh, biofluids to biocompatible end products. And so we can develop, let's say, you know, and we published very recently a cardiac uh, pacemaker, uh, a wireless uh, a pacemaker uh, uh, that we uh, constructed out of materials that are bioresorbable. And so there you, you really need function only for, um, you know, a couple of weeks during a critical risk uh, period following uh, a, a surgical, uh, a cardiac surgery. And so you'd like to be able to pace the heart, you know, to the extent that that's needed as the patient recovers. That that's the idea. And then after the the patient has recovered, you don't need the the pacing functionality anymore. And so uh, you'd you'd like to design the device to just melt away and disappear uh, to avoid what would otherwise, uh, you know, be a requirement for a secondary surgical extraction procedure. And so so that that would be my first answer, which is that that you don't need long-term stability in all use cases of clinical relevance. And so this whole idea of bioresorbable or transient electronics is very exciting as a 
engineering form of medicine, I guess, is the way you could uh, conceptually think about it. At some level, it's a resorbable suture, but it's an actually active electronic device, you know, and, uh, and it could really complement in a powerful way more traditional pharmacological approaches. But, but maybe to, to more, more the point of your question, if you want a device that uh, needs to, to operate for long periods of time, again, ultimately, you know, kind of life of the patient would, would be an example of that. I think redundancy is probably the, the only way to, uh, to address in the practical engineering reality that failures will occur. It's, it's hard to imagine that you'd be able to design a system that is free of failures, right? Completely um, absent of failures over those types of timescales across, let's say, a population scale deployment. So, so, you know, hundreds of thousands of devices and patients, and they have to last 30, 40, 50 years. The, the idea that you would be able to do that without any device failures, probably totally unrealistic. And so I think redundancy is, is probably the, the way to go. So just as you would engineer a device to last 100 years, if the specification is to last for 50 years, you des design the system with five sensors when you only need two sensors to work, you know, that, that type of thing. So redundancy at that level. And we've already done that in certain instances. So for brain mapping devices that sit on the surface of the, um, surface of the brain, um, you can only monitor you know, electrical activity at a certain level of res resolution. Yet um, we develop arrays that have densities that exceed that resolution. So we're kind of oversampling the spatiotemporal maps of electrical activity that we capture with those devices so that if any unit cell within that array fails, it's no problem because we have working adjacent uh, sensors that, that could be used to kind of fill in, fill in that gap. And, and I think that's probably the best way, way to do it. Um, the, the other solution would be to design the system so that at least you know when it has failed and that um, you, know, you can no longer trust the data from that particular uh, sensor. And maybe in certain instances of superficial implants, it would afford an opportunity to surgically extract the device, repair it, or ins insert a new, new, new device. It's a little more primitive way to do things, and maybe you want to do both. You have redundancy, but you also have mechanisms for making a determination of when, when the device is not working anymore. And we actually did that in, in a simple example with these uh, uh, bioresorbable temporary pacemakers in the sense that we have the, the implant that's doing the pacing, but then we also have a, uh, a patch that mounts on the surface of the skin. It's delivering wireless power to the device and also controlling the pacing parameters, but it can also measure the cardiac response and so if, if the heart is not effectively paced by the pacemaker, we know that because we're me measuring the cardiac rhythm. We're also pacing the uh, pacemaker so we know what the rhythm should be. If it's not what the pacemaker is dictating, we know the pacemaker has failed. You know? So they, diff different things of that sort can, can be embedded into the overall design. And I, and I think it's, it's probably... Um, extremely important to have that level of function integrated into, into how, how the overall system is operating. So another point about the practicality, to have designed something practical uh, in, the, in this scope, when you look to what we do, maybe in research, do you think sometimes this thing doesn't really work? Because you have the experience for the commercial part, so when you try to design something and be practical, 
and make sense because sometimes I don't know if you agree with that. Sometimes the solution is not practical. Yes, it may be solve the problem, but it's not practical for as a product. Do you have encountered something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a lot of academic groups there's there's a risk uh, of of that happening. <laughs> you know that that you end up you're working on something that ends up kind of being an academic curiosity, totally impractical. You know, I, I got my career start at Bell Laboratories, and I think, you know, Bell Labs established um, almost an ideal model for how to do fundamental scientific research, but in the context of uh, technology requirements uh, that include, you know, operational stability, telecommunications, almost similar to the implants we're talking about, 25, 50-year lifetimes, you know, are, are typical. And, uh you are addressing real real requirements in, in cost and longevity and, and performance and so on. And so I guess we've tried to embed that kind of uh, culture and that type of mindset into the academic programs that that we have here in, here in my group. Not quite as rigidly maybe as was done at, at Bell Labs because the environment is different here and students have to be afforded an opportunity to make mistakes and do kind of dumb things as part of the learning process and that's fine. And uh, and, and you need to, need to allow for that. I, I think it's an, an important uh, part of uh, you know, being a PhD ex, uh, student and, and learning how to do things. But, but we, we try to uh, embed sort of um, practical engineering thinking into uh, you know, most of our, our programs. Not all. I mean, some of them are just open-ended, you know, wild ideas, academic, trying to think about 3D, for example, and how to do integration. I'm not sure that'll work out, but it's something that you know, if it's happening anywhere, it should be happening at a university. That that's the environment for that sort of thing. And I think it's important to have some component of your research in that kind of uh, lunatic fringe type type of space. But but a lot of what we do, you know, we we aim, you know, we set success metrics that are defined not by simply publishing a scientific paper in a competitive journal, but ultimately taking those ideas and. Uh, you know, deploying them in, in a meaningful way that, that could have broad societal impact. And so I can give you a, a specific example just to try to illustrate how, how this works. So we published a paper in spring 2019 in science around a battery-free, wireless, kind of skin-like device platform that has the capability of uh, ICU-grade clinical monitoring for premature babies, uh, which, which are currently monitored by just really an awful rat's nest of wires and hard biosensors and adhesive tapes. It's really ill-suited Ill for that patient population. It's something we started working on in 2015, published in 2019. So these are really fully epidermal or skin-like devices using all the design principles we talked about before. And uh, we have the ability to run them without batteries and in a continuous wireless fashion. And we've done probably 200 premature babies through our collaborations that we have here at Lurie Children's Hospital, no adverse events and quantitatively correlated to clinical standards using the old wired-based approaches. And that was great. And we published those results in uh, 2019. We were shortly um, thereafter contacted by program managers at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and with folks at the Sh Save the Children organization asking whether we could take those technologies and put them in lower and middle income countries where there are no monitoring technologies at all. And so we began to think about that. And uh, I guess we had that in the back of our mind, deployment, but that, that was a fa fairly challenging 
set of circumstances. How do you do it at the appropriate cost point? How you do it in uh, devices that are sufficiently rugged and robust for use in these highly resource-constrained areas of the globe? And uh, it really got us thinking about it and uh, created a whole new set of really interesting engineering challenges that that mapped quite nicely, uh, you know, into academic efforts in in engineering science. Like, how how do you do do this kind of monitoring with those additional constraints layered on top? And so we were able to sort of take a step back and, and figure things out and put together, you know, devices that, that met uh, cost requirements and, and robustness in operation. And you have to do multiple cycles of use, it has to be reusable. Everything, all the monitors that are used, uh, you know, here in the U.S. In, in NICU facilities are single use. They're disposable. That's impossible, you know, in Zambia, for example. You just can't support the economics associated with that. So we really have to think about reusable, rechargeable devices, fully wireless totally encapsulated, waterproof, all this stuff. And so we're able to do that and uh, publish the results in spring of 2020 in the journal Nature Medicine. And so those devices are now deployed at scale in Zambia, Kenya, Ghana, India, Pakistan, and Mexico through Save the Children Organization and uh, the Gates Foundation. So I think practical thinking and, and considerations around, you know, how do you really do deployment economically I think there are tremendously interesting academic science-based questions that need to be answered to address those, those kinds of uh, constraints and, and requirements. And, and I think it's the same type of thinking that led to, say, the invention of the transistor at, at Bell Laboratories. It wasn't a purely academic exercise around understanding how semiconductors operate, but it was really a directed effort to answer the question of, how do we create a better switch that doesn't have reliability problems like vacuum tubes? And so I think that kind of push and pull between real-world requirements and practical considerations and basic scientific research and engineering development, it creates a really rich environment and, and one that we've tried to reproduce here uh, because I think it's also a great benefit to the students because many of them will end up with jobs in industry and they need to be thinking about a lot of these things. And, and so, so maybe that's one specific example that gets to your question. Mm -hmm. That's really insightful. Yeah, maybe I'm curious about maybe what's something do you think maybe still hard to understand or you think that's maybe, I, I wish that would be uh, the future of the design for sensor for patient in that case. If you have this kind of futuristic vision for the design here. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we like to think about engineering as a, maybe dominant theme for how healthcare will be improved over time. And we have, you know, a collection of sensors. This is global effort, many academic groups, many uh, companies working along these lines, not just us, obviously. But, but thinking about not just sensing, but, but also delivering therapies of various sorts. And, and maybe that could be electrical stimulation or mechanical perturbation or thermal therapy could involve, you know, pharmacological approaches as well. But, but um, you know, engineered vehicles for controlling pharmacokinetics and, and for releasing drugs on a, on a, uh, a pre-programmed uh, time scale. But I think the future is like combining sensing with actuation in a close feedback loop. So you have a device that's monitoring continuously organ health and then responding accordingly. So, so we have a very simple device. Uh, and you're beginning to see this uh, begin, begin to emerge and in the context of treatment of epilepsy, for example, devices that monitor precursors uh, to electrical activity that lead to seizures, and then uh, stimulators that, that can uh, eliminate that um, 
that seizure before it ever happens, you know, or, or devices that inter, inter, interface with the, uh, with the heart that can pick up very early signatures of a developing arrhythmia and then stimulate the, the cardiac uh, contractions and, and the cardiomyocytes in a way that uh, eliminates the formation of that, that arrhythmia in, in the first place. So I think like a symbiotic integration of, um, you know, man-made systems with naturally occurring biological systems in, in a way that, um, you know, enhances and improves organ function, extends human life, uh, I, I guess is, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 year uh, vision for, for how things might, might evolve in, in kind of a symbiotic way that blurs the distinction between technology and biology. These, these two systems are engineered to coexist in a way that, uh, you know, has a benefit on, on, on human health. So, so I guess that, that's kind of the vision of like where, where we hope uh, th things will go uh, in the future. And I think there are corresponding opportunities beyond just ma uh, managing uh, health status to brain-machine interfaces and sort of uh, you know, melding of uh, uh, the brain with, with artificial intelligence. And there are a lot, a lot of people thinking about, about uh, that, that opportunity as well. But, but it really starts with hardware innovation and material science is my... <laughs> Is my feeling, and that's kind of where our expertise is. But but uh, in in realizing that that longer term uh, vision is, is something we're interested in. And last question is: What could be the best advice was given to you, and was life changing? Stick to your mind, advice you received, and was life changing advice? Yeah. Yeah, I I would say a um, couple of things. One one is you know everybody's different, and and you. I think the hardest thing in, in developing a career is finding out what you're really good at and, and what you enjoy doing. And um, I think one, once you figure that out, then, then everything else, you know, there, there's a greatly, greatly enhanced clarity around, you know, choices and, uh, and uh, decisions that you make at various stages of, of your career. That, that's one, one thing is, is find what you're best at and, um, and kind of do that. And, and then, you know, for all the other stuff, you know, develop a way to um, collaborate effectively. That, that's kind of been a, a hallmark of the way we've built our programs is kind of understanding our core competencies and, and kind of focusing on that and then understanding how to work effectively with others, um, you know, to bring in, let's say, the mechanical engineering computational capability. We could potentially develop that ourselves, but, but why not work with a world expert and, and uh, allow us to de devote most of our bandwidth to, to what we're really good at and you know, similar, similarly in, in clinical medicine, you know, we, we don't know, you know, uh, patient challenges and things. So you work with nurses, you work with physicians or in neuroscience, you, you know, you work with experts in, in, in those areas. So kind of understanding what you're good at, developing a deep competency in that space, but also um, kind of being able to communicate and engage with people who have expertise in adjacent areas. So almost like a T-shaped um, uh, expertise profile, deep in one area, but then an ability to extend out and engage with uh, others in, in, in other communities to kind of leverage your own capabilities with that of others. And, and I think that that really enhances the, the scope of things that, that you can take on, the, uh, the level of you know, engineering challenges that, that you can tackle, and ultimately enhances your own productivity as well. So, so that, that would be kind of my, my main advice to maybe younger people who are trying, trying to figure things out. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for closing. Any final words you'd like to say? 
Uh, no, I think we covered a lot, a lot of ground. It was a great conversation. I appreciate that. Thank you. So thank you once again for such a It was really enjoyable, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.